Merry Christmas, God speak on this Sunday afternoon. Great to be with you. Wasn't the band awesome? What a blessing. <laughs> Woo! Praise the Lord. Hey, if you have a Bible, you might want to make your way to the Gospel of John chapter 4 for our message, Hometown Christmas. And I am using the uh, NLT translation because it is such a sweet passage of Scripture in this. And so if you have the New King James, it's going to be, it's saying the same thing in a little different verbiage. I don't know if you remember your first Christmas when you came to Jesus, but for me it was very vivid. It was very radical because... Uh, for me, my family were these pagans that just, uh, I mean, we weren't CEO Christians, meaning you go to church on Christmas and Easter only. We, we never went to church. We, uh, Christmas Eve was, uh, our house was the party house on Christmas Eve. All my friends came and got hammered and stoned. And so that's what we did on Christmas Eve until I got saved. And then when I got saved, it was the weirdest thing. I mean, as I moved towards Christmas, my whole, it's like this paradigm shift of your entire life, right? You're just, you're living for sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and now you're in love with Jesus. And you're like, it's Christmas. It's, you know, baby was born in Bethlehem for my sins. And I'm like, are you into Christmas? I'm into Christmas. You know, it's all of a sudden, you're this, uh, this little kid again. And uh, it was funny because then I started watching. I'm just kind of telling on myself. You, you watch all of the... Uh, the Christmas cartoons, you know, when you're a kid growing up. But my favorite was always, even though I couldn't really identify with it in the same way. But now as a new Christian going towards Christmas, I saw the little drummer boy. And it's like, this is all I got. This is, this is what I got to give to the Lord. You know, I, I got my drum. I'm just going to beat this drum. And as a young Christian, that resonated with me. I'm like, Lord, I don't know what you'll do with my life, but I I don't even have a drum. <laughs> I don't even have drumsticks. But you're my savior now. And there was such a transformation for me and the Christmases that come. But so often, it's very sad with the commercialization and even the sterilization of, of, of Christmas. There's these nativity scenes, right? They come out each year. It's on your table Maybe it's in your yard, you have a big nativity. It's on the fireplace mantle. Sometimes there's crystal nativity scenes, and they're just so pristine. But Jesus, the condescension of the Son of God, it tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that Jesus, who was rich, basically in heaven, right? He's in the streets of gold. He, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the epicenter of the angelic world. They're all worshiping him, and he steps out of the golden city of heaven into a pile of manure in a stable. Now, if you're a country kid like me and you've cleaned stalls, immediately a pungent aroma just came to my head, right, from the stalls. When I was a kid, those who know where Paramount Ranch is, just over the hill here, Paramount Ranch was leased by an old cowboy by the name of D. Cooper. And D. Cooper hired my stepdad as a horse trainer and so I had to clean the stalls, my, me and my three siblings, we'd clean the stalls every morning, feed all of the animals. But the stud horses there, their stalls were so terrible, rank. Like, just, just thinking about it, like dry heave kind of thing. And it's, it's no mystery why Jesus was going to step out of the wealth and gold of heaven 
and to the pile of manure of sin, sickness, and death of our lives. Because Christmas is always, not always, neat and tidy, is it? Some of you are here on this Christmas weekend, and I mean, you're heartbroken about some stuff that's going on. Whether it's sin in your life, struggling with relationships in your life, it's the first Christmas without a loved one in your life, it's the first Christmas after the divorce. This week on Friday, I had a good friend of mine call me and give me his diagnosis, which startled me and my wife and his family, obviously, uh, with a cancer diagnosis and prayed for him on the phone and really overwhelmed for him. He's going to go into really aggressive treatments. And I came to the staff meeting from that conversation, and one of our staff members said a friend of his just called, young guy, 24, has a, he's not a Christian, and he has a girlfriend. They have three kids together, and she just got a very critical diagnosis, and he was calling for help and support. And I'm coming from my, my friend's phone call and coming into my other uh, teammates' situation, and then I left that staff meeting on Friday, and I came out, and I was uh, going to my apartment, and it rained really hard. And so here was a, a letter, a soaking let, wet letter on the sidewalk out inside of our outside of our apartments that said child, protect, uh, child uh, support services. And so I picked it up and it's like ringing wet. And, and it just took me back to my childhood because my, my dad gave my mom $100 a month for child support, $25 a piece, uh, if, he could, if he even sent the check. And we were from hand to mouth just like Poor white trash. And if that check didn't come, we were banking on 100 bucks back in the early 70s to survive. And so this, uh, a this uh, letter was soaking wet, and it was a few uh, apartment building down from mine. So I didn't know if, if this child support service is coming to the dad that has to pay it, he doesn't want this letter on his doorstep. And if it's coming with a word of hope that the check's on the way from the child uh, you know, support services, so I didn't know what to do. With it. So I just went and I just, I dropped it in front of his, but it was so wet, it's just like it stuck like glue right, right by his doorstep. And so when that person comes home, he's gonna look down and see that. And looking at the letter, I only read the title and it broke my heart. You see, Jesus came for broken lives like you and me. He came for hurting people like us. And it's not a pristine, sterile nativity scene. In this story, Hometown Christmas, Jesus makes it a point to have a divine appointment with a woman that is gonna change this community's perspective. And in a sense, because they meet Jesus, it's their first Christmas, so to speak. Check it out as we pick it up in verse four of John chapter four, Hometown Christmas. It says in verse four, he had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. And he was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you. See that again. The gift that God has for you. And who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living waters. Let's pray. 
Father, I just ask that your word would find your way into our hearts. I pray that you would sweep away the busyness, the schedules, the thoughts about uh, dinner plans for Christmas Eve tonight, travel for Christmas tomorrow, whatever it is, Lord, would you sweep away those things? May they just recede into the back of our minds. And Lord Jesus, we pray that we would see the gift that you have for us and the living water that you have for us today. We ask it by your spirit in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. The first thing we see is a divine appointment. In this passage, we're going to see a divine appointment, divine relationships, and a divine community. And as we see this first individual, it tells us he had to go through Samaria on the way in verse 4. This is a divine appointment. Jesus goes out of his way to end up at this well at noon when nobody else is going to be at the well. You see, in those ancient cultures, people would go in the morning to the well, in the evening to the well, but you don't go in the heat of the day. You don't go at noontime unless you're a social pariah. You're somebody that's trying to avoid the crowd. Because you see, cancel culture's not new. Cancel culture's been going on a long time, right? You know anybody in a bad reputation in your school growing up? And they have the hardest time shaking it once they get that label on them. And there's a woman in this story that has that kind of label on her. But before we get to her, Jesus made his way there as a divine appointment out of everywhere else the Son of God could be. He wanted to be on time at that well, arrived right before, because when she showed up, he had an appointment with her. Just like he has an appointment with each one of us in our lives. The divine nature in which God moves us to the right place to hear his message at the right time, at the right place, in the right circumstances. Even this week, we saw an individual that had a divine appointment. We were at the beach. My daughter and son-in-law and my two grandchildren are staying with us for a couple of weeks here through the holidays. And we were over at Malibu Beach. And uh, we were getting cleaned up after being at the beach and playing in the water. And, you know, you go over to the the shower station to wash off your feet, wash off the sound before you get in your rig. And so my daughter's over there with the kids and the grandkids. And then they all come back to the van. I'm I'm, uh, the Sherpa. I'm hauling all the stuff, throwing it in the van. I'm the pack boy. And, and I keep looking around and I see my wife. It's about 100 yards over to the, where the showers are. And she's talking to a man and it looks like his 12-year-old son. And I thought, well, she's just, my wife's very sweet and very kind. She's just greeting them. And then I look around the van again and she's now getting more so I can see that she's really into a conversation. I'm like, oh, my wife has a divine appointment. She has them everywhere she goes, just the way the Lord works with her. The Lord brings people across her path and she's like, oh, and this is what Jesus has for you. You know, she just, she just talks to him about the Lord. And so she's lingering on. We've got everybody loaded up. And finally, she's Johnny come lately. She comes to the van and I'm like, hey, honey, tell us about that divine appointment. She's, she said, it was so crazy. Like I didn't know that's what was going on being married to her for 37 years. She said, it's so crazy. This guy uh, said that he's got five kids, but his one son and him were gonna come to the beach. He said, he's a Christian. He said, the Lord told me I should come over here to the beach today, and I'm struggling with this list of things. And he told her what the list of things were. And my wife had a word of encouragement and wisdom and spiritual guidance for him and his family through those three things. He's like, I can't believe this. God told me to come over here to the beach. Here we are at the beach and washing off our feet in the shower. And you're telling, here we have this meeting. And, and God has a, a message for me. And my wife says, can I pray for you? And he goes, oh, yes, please be praying for me this week. She goes, no, right now. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> can you pray at the beach? You most certainly can. 
until they start arresting us in California. You can still pray at the beach. Just, just want you to know to set you free if you had any questions. So my wife prays for his, him and his son and their family in those situations. And then she gets in the car like it's just an average day in the life of my wife as the Lord moves her around. But you know, the Lord does that in our lives. And this is one of those divine appointments. Now, if Jesus is going to have a divine appointment, you might think it's with princes, it's with kings, it's with priests, it's with the who's who. But the power of the gospel, the power of the Christmas story of Jesus coming into the world and being Emmanuel, God amongst us, is if you go through the gospels, you will find that it is the personal one-on-one stories when Jesus interfaces with one person that is so powerfully impactful to your life. And this woman is that kind of person. And Jesus is ministering to broken hearts. And this is a broken-hearted woman. She shows up out there at noon. We'll find in a little bit that she's probably got a pretty bad reputation because she's had all these multiple marriages and a very long list of divorces. And in a small community, that's known by everybody. And she comes out and Jesus does something that is unthinkable. He breaks social etiquette. A man on his own and a woman in that ancient culture, they don't interact with each other. Even when the disciples come back later in the story, they're, they're shocked that Jesus is talking to a woman all by himself. Not only would a Jewish man not do this, but they're Jewish rabbi. So Jesus breaks the social norms. He also breaks a racial norm uh, that they had this incredible hostility between Jews and Samaritans in this passage of scripture. When it says, Jesus says, please give me a drink in verse seven. Um, and then it says, In verse nine, the woman was surprised. She's shocked because she knows he's a Jew, the way he's dressed, for Jews refuse to have anything to do with Samaritans. Why was that? Because 100 years before Jerusalem and the southern kingdom was uh, conquered by Babylon and taken into captivity, 100 years before that, the Assyrians conquered the 10 northern tribes and took them into captivity and then transplanted other pagan people. Yes, they worshiped the true and living God, but every other pagan as well. So it was this hodgepodge of religion. They looked at them as half-breeds. They weren't really Jews. They might have some Jewish blood in them, but they worshiped on a different mountain. They had a different worship uh, culture. And so there was this great hostility, so much so that James and John, the two apostles, that when they were traveling with Jesus down to Jerusalem, they were trying to spend the night in an inn or get lodging in Samaria. And when they realized they were going to Jerusalem for the feast, they refused to let them rent a room. And so when James and John came back to Jesus, they said, Lord, grant us that we might call fire down from heaven and destroy their village. They said, like Elijah. Because Elijah did this in a different story. And Jesus said, you don't know what manner of, I came to save lives, not to destroy them. I didn't come to fry villages. (laughs) I came to heal broken hearts. Right? But James and John, they get the nickname Bonerges, which means sons of thunder. Now, these are two apostles. They're going to be, John the apostle would later be known as Jesus changes his life as the apostle of love. But now he's the son of thunder that wants to fry you if you disagree with him. This is the kind of hostility that was between them because Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. So there was ethnic, racial tension. There was social tension or norms because he was breaking this etiquette of a man talking to a woman alone. There was also the obvious that this is at noon 
and not in the morning or the evening when the rest of the village would be coming for water in the morning or in the evening because you see this woman um, is trying to dodge as many prying eyes as she can because of what her lifestyle has been like. But Jesus asks her something fascinating or tells her something fascinating in verse 10. If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living waters. This woman is coming because of a physical thirst and Jesus uses this illustration of a physical thirst to talk about the spiritual thirst that you and I have today and we will always have in our life. And that is a spiritual thirst and a spiritual hunger to know God. Even the most hardened pagan is worshiping and serving something, even though they'll claim they're not. Because all humans are wired and designed to give their hearts and their passions and to follow something bigger than themselves. And so Jesus is really saying, you know what? You have a genuine spiritual thirst. Let me just ask you about Christmas this weekend, right here this morning. Are you totally empty from just being drained from life? Do you feel like there's a barrenness in your soul? Do you feel like there's a drought in your soul? Do you feel like there's a barrenness in your marriage, a barrenness in your relationship with your kids, a barrenness even in the workplace? Here you are, you've got money in the bank, you've got a roof over your head, you've got two cars, three cars, you've got the children, you've got the soccer mom van, you've got what would be called the American dream. And the American dream is about freedom, not about material prosperity, but it's really morphed into material prosperity. And do you know that you can have everything you need and feel like you are absolutely bankrupt inside? You're empty. It's like you're dying for a drink of water that... Not a physical drink of water, but a spiritual drink of water. And that's what Jesus is offering in this divine appointment to this woman. He said, if you only knew the gift that God has for you. And I want you to know that. What he's telling her, he's telling you today. And this gift of God that he has for you is the refreshment of the work of God's spirit through a relationship with God in a vertical relationship. Because if we only live on the horizontal plane, work, eat, sleep, and the human relationships, and we don't tap in to the, the moisture of heaven, we are gonna be this shriveled up, cynical old people in the wheelchair, drooling on ourselves, mad at the world. You ever seen a cynical, mean old person? They hate life, and they hate God, and they hate you because you're in their light? How do people get that way? Well, just live a life of barrenness. Live a life of emptiness. Pursue money. Pursue the degree. Pursue the award. Pursue everything. And at the end of every single one of those roads, you come up empty from what you're really trying to satisfy deep inside. And when you discover that, then it makes the journey for all the other things okay because, hey, I have a sustenance. I've discovered a gift that God has for me. I've discovered living waters from heaven through a relationship with Jesus. This is where Jesus is taking this woman. So now we see this continue to unfold in this conversation in verse 11. It says, but sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? 
How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? And Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Once again, she thinks this is magic water. It's in a bottle. It's uh, the fountain of youth, so to speak. But she wants her problem to, of daily thirst to stop. But once again, she doesn't get the illustration yet, but she's going to. Jesus continues to lead her along this path. She looks at the physical situation. She must have come out. He says, she said, you don't have a bucket. You don't have a rope. The well's really deep. You're getting nothing, man. Where are you getting your living water? Well, you see, he's not throwing a line down a hole in the ground. He's bringing the water from heaven itself. So two different directions. She's looking in the earth. He's looking in the heavens. And she sees the physical constraint that he has nothing to offer, but she wants what he's talking about. She's just not quite getting it yet. Do spiritual things make sense to you? Do spiritual things click for you? Because the Bible says that there's three categories of people. There's the natural man, that's a person that's not a Christian or a woman that's not a Christian. When you talk to them about spiritual things, it's like the deer in the headlights, like, I don't get it. I don't know what they're talking about. It's like me before I became a Christian at the age of 19, my grandparents had dragged me to church and I hated it. I hated to be around Christians. I didn't want to be in church and I didn't want to hear the Bible quoted at me or preached to me. I wanted nothing to do with God or church. And when I was there and I would hear them, I said, like, they're just yammering on. It, it, it might as well have been that, the, you know, all the adults in the Charlie Brown cartoon, it's like, wah, 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 wah. That's what church was, wah, 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 wah. I'm like, that was, a lot. that was a waste of a good Sunday morning. I could have been riding my bike or something like that when I was a kid. And so it's, you don't get it because the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. But then there's the spiritual person that all these things click for you. You go, oh, I get it. I've experienced that. I, I know God. Then there's the carnal man who is somebody that knows the Lord, but they care so much about the things of this world, they're basically blunted and dulled into not having much spiritual life. And I don't know where this Christmas weekend finds you, but you're in one of those three categories. You're a natural person without being born again, you're, I'm up here like wah, 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 wah in a blue jacket. That's all you're getting. And you're like, I agreed to come to this because somebody promised me in and out after this. <laughs> Christmas Eve in and out. Here we go. All right. Double animal. So in that, that dynamic, there's something that has to click. There, there's a spiritual work that in the divine appointment that God is working in your life and in my life. So now we change to divine relationships because Jesus is talking about the living waters that come from heaven in a relationship with him, with this woman. And so in verse 16, it says, Jesus, it, it, it appears that he's changing the subject, but he's not changing the subject at all. He's talking about living waters for your soul because there's a drought, there's a barrenness inside of you. And then it's like, it feels like he switches the subject in verse 16, go and get your husband, Jesus told her. 
I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. We're talking about living waters, and now you want to talk about my marital status and my e-harmony account? Right? Come on, what's going on? I'm on the dating side. I'm just making my rounds, doing my hookups with everybody. Well, why is it that Jesus, when he's talking about really deep, wonderful spiritual things, he then turns it and says, why don't you take a look at your life? Because the Holy Spirit reveals who God is to you, but you know what the Holy Spirit in a more scary way reveals? It reveals who you are and who you've been and what's going on in your life. When Adam and Eve sinned and the Lord came in the cool of the day and he said, Adam, where are you? Now, does God, the creator of the universe, really not know where Adam is? Can you play hide and seek with God and actually, you know, pull it off? No. Does God know where Adam is? Most certainly. Does he know where he is? Yes. But what he's doing is he's probing and he's saying, Adam, what's going on? And Adam goes, well, I hid because I was afraid and I'm naked. The Lord's like, well, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree I, I told you not to eat from? Well, it, was, it was the woman that you gave to me, right? It's her fault, and you gave her. I didn't, you even knocked me out. I, I didn't even have a chance, right? You put me to sleep. You made her out of my side. It's your fault. It's her fault. I'm over here just naked and ashamed. I don't know what to do. It's not my fault. <laughs> Definitely victim mentality right there. Shifting the, the blame. It's somebody else's fault. And we go through life that way, don't we? We're a broken mess here today, and it's your ex's fault. They have ruined your life. They are Satan incarnate. Well, there's two sides to every story. And the reality is, is that Jesus, when he says, hey, why don't you go get your husband? You've been trying to fill up this place in your life through waters that don't satisfy, through men. Right, And so she's just, men will be my savior. I'm going to go from this man, number one, this man, number two, this man, number three. Do I hear number four, number five? Okay, I'm working on this one. Forget the marriage license. Who needs to get married today? Let's just be shacked up. Here you are today. You're in church. It's Christmas. And you're shacked up here right now. I've got to work from the Lord. It's a person right? But no, I don't. <laughs> right? Because you, you think that that relationship or that sexual intimacy is the, the best it's gonna get for the living waters for your soul. But you will still come up empty. You will still come up short. You will still feel like there's barrenness in your soul. And he's trying to show her, I'm bringing you living waters, but this is what you've been, the fountain you've been drinking from. Relationship after relationship after relationship after relationship. And some people are just addicted to relationships, right? You know anybody like that? They love the, it's about a six-month, like, oh, in the words of the cartoon Bambi, we're Twitter-pated, right? And they just talk about how marvelous this new person is. And you kind of roll your eyes. If you have friends, I've had friends like that. And they just go through all of these relationships because in eight months, whenever, it's you know, statistically, your IQ drops about 50 points when you fall into the, like, infatuation stage. You just become stupid. <laughs> Straight up, emotionally stupid. And then you come out of it, and one day you go, you, you see the person, like, all the fog of euphoria is gone, and every relationship goes through this. And you're like, whoa, they got stinky feet. 
My senses didn't even work for six months, right? And now I, I really... And so now you realize that we say the honeymoon's over and now the work begins because it takes a lot of laying your life down to love and serve one another to have a beautiful relationship. To have a relationship that can go through the good, the bad, and the ugly of life and survive. I know, it's not like I got married yesterday. I've been married 37 years from my first date. I think it's like 42 years from the first time I dated my wife, my high school sweetheart. And people look at me and they go, oh, Pastor Rick, you guys must live in a little cottage with a white picket fence and you never have an argument and you're just, God must protect his little servants of the Lord. If anything, I have more spiritual warfare than you because the Lord wants to shut my mouth from speaking. I mean, the enemy does, not the Lord. So I know all about it. If you got marriage, you got tension. You got any tension at Christmas? Your wife looks at you and you said, you invited who? <laughs> right? <laughs> you said we'd go where? And you never talked to me? Oh, it's going to be great, babe. No, it's not. Remember last year? Never mind. Anyway. <laughs> so that's the question that he had asked each one of us. Hey, what fountain have you been drinking from? Maybe it's not the fountain of relationships. Maybe it's something else. Right? What, what's the thing that you've thought would satisfy you, but it keeps coming up short? Just keeps coming up short. In verse 19, she says, Sir, the woman said, You must be a prophet, <laughs> you think? <laughs> you have that conversation. Hey, go get your husband. Oh, you've had five husbands. The guy you're shocked up with, I was like, Who told on me? Did mom write to you a letter or something? What happened? And so she perceives that he's a prophet. And she says, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped? And Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the, day is, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship while we Jews know all about him for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, and indeed, it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, and the Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In this experience of relationships, as the Lord reveals to her where she's been drinking from, the well she's been drinking from, that coming up empty, he, she changes the subject to become spiritual. This happens to me every time I tell somebody I'm a preacher. It's terrible. I usually don't tell people I'm a preacher until they pry it out of me with many questions. I deflect, I dodge. I don't mind telling them I'm a Christian, but as soon as you tell them you're a preacher, it's like so, they, they, they just become robots. And then they just remembered five minutes ago, they told me the filthiest joke on the planet, on the airplane while we're traveling somewhere, right? And they all, all of them get spiritual. They're like, oh, you know, I was confirmed when I was, you know, 12 years old, and I was christened when I was a baby, and I have a great uncle that was a missionary in Africa. And they go through this rampage of religiosity, and you're just sitting there. We were building a uh, a new phase on our church years ago and I'm walking up and as I'm coming up there's all of these ungodly people working on the church and I would just take the opportunity to love them for Jesus and I'm walking up and as I w was walking up this guy was smoking a cigarette 
he's a painter, and he, he's uh, smoking this cigarette. And when he turns around, he sees me, and he doesn't know what he has to do with his cigarette. I could care less what he does with it. And he puts it in his... And I walked up to her and I just wanted to sit there and just see how long can you keep that smoke in your pocket without burning your leg or something, right? So people just get weird when you, you say you're a, a preacher or something like that. But because of the way Jesus exposed her heart, and that's what true prophecy is, it's, have you ever come to church and just felt like the Lord was le- reading your mail? Like he just opened up your heart. You feel like somebody told on you. I've had people literally come up to me after a service and say, did my mother call you? And they're dead serious. A guy in his 50s told me that. And I'm thinking, your mother? I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking, are you in her basement? Why, why would your mother call me? You're 50 years old. <clears throat> but she wants to now talk about religion. Because it's always more comfortable to talk about religion that's out here than the actual issues that are in here. Isn't it? It's easier to talk about external things, but Jesus was getting in her business, talking about the relationships and the marriage and really what's satisfying her deep inside and where she's turning to looking for love in all the wrong places. And as this unfolds here, Jesus says, the Father is looking for those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. These are the two dimensions that we connect with God on. The one is that, that spiritual, the work of God's spirit. We were worshiping earlier, and some of us are just lost in the music and in the spirit, so to speak, of this worship experience. And now we're talking about truth because it's actually articulation of the word of God. So you want both those things to be drawn. Some of you love to come to church for the music, and you want to leave as soon as the sermon starts. Some of you want to come after worship because you could care less about the spirit and church, and it's too loud. It's just too loud. You need earplugs down there at that Godspeak place. It's just too loud. They got that drummer back there who thinks he's a rock star, you know. So you come. We hear it every week. So <clears throat> is it right for a guitar player to have a whammy bar in church, you know? And wah, wah. Does that glorify Jesus? I don't think so. Anyway, so there are those who come after worship because you don't want the, that, that atmosphere of just spiritual lost worship. You love the cerebral truth. But the Father wants people that discover the power in both those things coming together, Amen. right? The, the love of worship, the love of the work of the Spirit of God and the work of the Word of God to change us, to change us and transform us. And the Father is seeking those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. And he said, the time is now. We don't have to worry about being at Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim or up in the mountains of Tibet, you know, meditating on my belly below. I, I don't have to tap into the new age energy of the earth. I just have to talk to Jesus. The Bible says that God is not in the heavens, so to speak. He's not been below. He's near as the word of faith that I can talk to him. And, and Jesus is telling this woman right now, this is, this is what God is looking for in you. This is why I've, I've made this appointment. She doesn't even know God made this divine appointment. God made this divine appointment. Jesus is here to share with her in that appointment what's important. And so she says in verse 25, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming and the one who is called Christ, when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. 
Jesus does not straight up tell people he's, in the, he's the Messiah throughout the gospels. Like, check it out. He doesn't. Why does he do it with this woman? She's a Samaritan. In a sense, she's outside the covenant people because she's kind of a half-breed people in, in the sense that the gospel comes to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. And we see that this is the way the gospel goes out throughout the New Testament. And, and yet Jesus, she goes, oh, I, I know there's this, this, the Savior's coming. I know the Messiah's coming. I know the one who's gonna explain all this to us. When, when he comes, he'll explain everything. And Jesus said, I'm him. The one guy at the well in the middle of nowhere that you meet in a divine appointment is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and he chose to have an appointment with you? <laughs> like, who am I? I'm just a chick that's had five failed marriages. No, you're a human being that God loves with all his heart. God loves you. He loves you in your sin. He loves you in your failure. He loves you in your struggle. He loves you in all, all the failure has brought you and I to this place to realize we need living waters. Amen? It's our brokenness. It's our, you know, until you experience emptiness, until you experience brokenness, and that's why parents that are brokenhearted and they'll go, Pastor, please pray for my, my 35-year-old son or my 35-year-old daughter, and they're far from God, and I raised them in the ways of the Lord. And I say, it's all right. They're going to come back to Jesus. And they go, how do you know? This is how I know. Because... Life is gonna to get too big for them. They're gonna get their heart broke. They're gonna lose everything. Or they'll get everything. Sometimes you get everything, and that's, that's one of the things you realize. You get everything, and you're like, oh, and I'm still not happy, right? You can lose everything, get everything, have the relationship, have all these experiences. You get the cancer diagnosis, and you got three months to live. And now how good is your degree? How good is that award you got in baseball? How good is, you know the rich neighborhood you live in, what, what good does that do you at that moment? Life is going to get too big for you. If you're here and you're a teenager and you're so bored with your Christian parents, oh, mom and dad, that's, oh, they're so square. They're so out of it. They're so out of touch. I mean, they don't even have a Twitter, you know, account. Like, they, you, you, think you, you think your parents, because your parents love you, and they have boundaries for you, it's because they care about you. And you can't wait to break off those constraints of your parents. You can't wait to be free. And then after about a year living with three roommates in a filthy apartment with no groceries in the cupboard, and you come home after a year and you're just like, whoa, there's food in the cupboards. Well, the laundry's done. and Ooh, the bathroom doesn't make me disgusted when I go into the thing. It's like, I don't even have ibuprofen. Mom, can I have some ibuprofen? (laughs) You don't know what you don't know. What you don't know is your parents have given you the best shot in the world to grow up with a loving family and experience the love of God in the house of God. But you know what? you're not gonna come to a deep relationship with Jesus till you go out and get your brains kicked in and then come back to Jesus. Now, you don't have to go that route. I would encourage you not to go that route. But some people are hard heads, but I encourage their mom and dad. That's why moms usually don't want me to pray for their children. After I pray, they look at me. I wanted you to pray for my Billy. I'm like, I know, I'm praying that Jesus brings him to a place of brokenness in his life. 
I don't want Billy to be broken. I said, well, Billy would be broken by this time if you would stop bailing him out of every situation. Billy would have been broken a very long time ago. But the thing getting between Billy and Jesus is mom. So mom, back off, give him to Jesus, and let Jesus do a work in Billy's life. If you want him to break through, pray that God brings them to the end of themselves, and there's only one place to look, straight up into the heavens of Jesus, where the living waters are, where the Messiah is, the Christ. Because this woman said, I know when the Messiah comes, he's gonna explain everything to me. Jesus said, well, here I am. I'm gonna tell you all about it. This is a very unique case because it's not like this woman goes on to be a massive evangelist. It's not like she goes on to, we don't know anything about her after this story. And yet Jesus loved her so much that he made a special appointment to meet her and to fill her with a quality of life and to convey God's love from heaven to her broken heart and her broken life. Well, it doesn't stop there as we wrap it up. We see the divine community because you see it starts with, hometown Christmas starts with one person in the family falling in love with Jesus, doesn't it? And then they start evangelizing everybody else. It says in verse 28, the woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Down to verse 39, many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they, when they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he indeed is the savior of the world. If you only knew the gift that God has for you, and then the community, she goes in and tells them about Jesus, they come out, they hear Jesus themselves, and now they believe, and this little, this village, this community of Sychar, has its very first Christmas, so to speak, that Jesus brought life into this village, and they said, now we know you're the savior of the world. The Samaritans in John chapter four discovered what most of the Jewish people had never heard with their own ears, that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the savior of the world because God wanted to convey his love and to bring living waters, the living waters of God's spirit to hurting hearts. Now Jesus told this woman that when you drink these waters, you're never gonna thirst again. Now how's that work in the real experience of Christian life? I've been a Christian in two months. It's going to be 40 years that I gave my life to Christ. So when I received Jesus, it was like I just was filled with this refreshment like living waters. But then over time, it begins to diminish. And so then I realize, oh, I, I, in order to continue to fill up the living waters, I need to connect with him in relationship because he's the source. So he's the spout where the blessings flow out. He's the source of refreshment. So then I realize, oh, in order to maintain this never thirsting, again, when I'm thirsty, I have to read his word and pray to him in a daily way to maintain, just like you need hydration and food in a daily way for your body, you also need the, the water of the word and the ministry of prayer and the spirit doing a work. Now, it doesn't mean every day is fireworks when I read my Bible. 
being a construction worker back in the day, I wasn't a preacher. I just get up in the morning. I had a bowl of Cheerios. I read a chapter in the Bible. I prayed going to work, and then I prayed coming home. The end. But every day, I sensed this quality of life inside of me because I was spending time in his word and time in prayer. Any relationship that grows in vibrancy is one of spending time in fellowship and communion, right? So I talk to my wife. She listens to me. She talks to me. I listen to her. We call that a relationship. If you've kind of forgotten that, some of you married people, that's, that's how that works. And so in that relationship, this is the same in our relationship with the Lord. I talk to the Lord in prayer. Lord, these are the things I'm struggling with. These are the things that are, I'm hurting. I can't believe this guy, you know, is so hateful at work. I can't believe that this, that, you know, I'm praying for my, my teammate because he's really struggling with his parents. Whatever I'm talking to the Lord about, I'm pouring my heart out to him. But when I read his word, he's talking to me. That's why people say, well, God just doesn't talk to me. And I simply ask him, are you reading the word? And they go, uh, no, I pray sometimes and come to church sometimes. And I'm like, well, how's God supposed to talk to you? God can subjectively, supernaturally speak to your heart and your mind. He can do that. But 90% of the time, 95% of the time, he's just talking to you this love letter as you read his word. That's why most Christians do not have vibrant, flourishing, hydrated relationships with God because they don't spend time. It's not like you gotta read the Bible from cover to cover in a month. Just read a chapter. Join our Anchored in the Word series and just start reading part of that every day. Because we have four breakdowns in there. We have a New Testament reading, an Old Testament reading, a Psalm, and a Proverb. And I did this. I had 120 people on staff at the fellowship where I was, very large staff and school and church. And so I would have all that. And every summer we would have three or four teenagers. And every, everybody had to share what they read that week in our Anchored in the Word reading. And I knew all the teenagers, they'd get up late, I mean, they got 10 minutes to get to the work. And there's only one proverb in there. And every morning, they're, the proverbs, the proverbs. And I'm like, well, that's one more proverb than they've ever read in their whole life, right? At least they're getting one proverb, let alone a, a chapter in the New Testament. You cannot have a vibrant, hydrated, flourishing, dynamic, joyful Christian life without daily spending time in the spring of living water in a relationship with the Lord, in the word, in prayer, in fellowship. And when you do that, everything begins to change. Your perspectives begin to change. You start actually longing for what we pray in the Lord's prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For the first time in my life, I start going, God, I want your will to be done in my life. I'm tired of my own will. My, 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 my will sucks, right? You wanna do it Rick's way and just be dead empty and just ruin everything? Do it my way. Frank Sinatra even sang a song. I did it my way. You look at Frank's life, it was not a very fulfilling life. I mean, he had a lot of fame, but fulfillment and fame are two different things. In this divine appointment that Jesus has with you here today, if he was to ask you, hey, what you been up to? What's going on in your heart? Are you satisfied? Are you just, I mean, the biggest thing you got going on this week is what presence you're under the tree? Right? I mean, is that it? Or do you have a relationship with the savior of the world, 
that loves you. And he brought you here today. You haven't been in church in months, maybe years for some of you. And Jesus brought you here today because he said, I love you and I wanted you to hear this message from me, from my word. If you only knew the gift I have for you, you would want to lay hold of it. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that by your spirit, you would move in our midst right now. And Lord, I know that there are those who are here today that their hearts are so empty, so dry, so barren, so unsatisfied, so unfulfilled, so empty. And they've been groping in the dark. They've been trying to experiment with all kinds of things that might satisfy and fill that void inside of them, but it just continues to come up empty. And I pray today, Lord, as you have a divine appointment for each one of them, that you would draw this, them in this moment to open their heart by faith to you and invite you, the source of living waters, to flow to their heart and their mind. So we're just in an attitude of prayer at the close of this service. If you, by faith, want to invite and open up your heart for the living waters of Jesus to bring the spirit that brings this refreshment to your soul, I just want to invite you to pray a simple prayer with me. Just right there in the quietness of your own seat between you and the Lord. Pray with me now. Jesus, please forgive me of my sin. I believe you died on the cross for me and that you rose from the dead. And here you are, Jesus, today sharing your love with me. Jesus, I, I ask that you would fill me with the living waters of your spirit, of the eternal life that you bring to a human soul. Lord, you promised that you would do that. You are the Messiah. You are the savior of the world. And I've discovered the gift that God has for me in receiving you as my savior. Jesus, be my Lord today. In your name I pray, amen.